RadioInfluence.com. And alongside veteran scout, coach, and consultant Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com, I'm Scott Seidenberg. This is Rush the Field College Football Podcast, the podcast for college football fans. And Chris, as we go through the spring, spring games are happening, and it's the time where I like to say it is okay to overreact to what we see in spring games because that's the fun of being a college football (laughs) fan is to overreact. Well, I think, yeah, I guess so. And it, But it is uh, the emphasis on overreact because I do think that the importance of spring games, at least from a fan standpoint, is focus on the young guys that maybe you haven't seen as much and see what they do, how they stand out athletically, because that's the only thing that's really useful in it because you're seeing um, not game planning, not a full-fledged game plan. So the overall production of the game, the overall um, how you perform and grade out. It's about more technique and assignment and not what you call, but how well you execute it. And so I think it's it's always fun, particularly people focus a lot on on the offense and particularly the quarterbacks and how well this guy threw and this guy did a nice job. This guy didn't. And I think they tend to, as you put it, overreact positively or negatively. Yep. But I would say temper things. Um a lot of what is done in spring is to teach, is to expose where you need to work and put your resources, where you need to look at certain players, maybe at other positions. And you kind of go through the post-spring process to get ready for, okay, here's where we need to really focus on what we need to do once we get into fall practice in August. So uh, it is not necessarily a good indicator of where you're going to be come kickoff time mm-hmm. in uh, in late August, early September. But it is certainly, I think, what it is. People are just jonesing for football action. Exactly. Their favorite team. And, and uh, they like to get excited or, in some cases, get depressed upon what they see <laughs> if they're overreacting negatively. That's a good point. You can overreact negatively. Well, one of the positive overreactions was to Justin Fields' debut as the Ohio State quarterback. Now, whether or not he's going to be the starter or not is up for debate. Of course, they're not going to name a starter just yet. Uh, We can get into the merits of that if you want in a couple of minutes, but Justin Fields, the highlight that you're going to see, and I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has seen it, Chris, the 98-yard touchdown pass. It was probably a 45-yard pass in the air, and the receiver did the rest of the work, but 98 looks good. But the negative side of Justin Fields is if you take away that 98-yard touchdown, And I know what you're going to say, Scott. You can't take it away. It happened. But let's just, for argument's sake, take it away. He was Mm -hmm. only 3 of 12 passing for 33 yards on the rest of his attempts without that 98-yard touchdown pass. So when you say, you know, hey, he completed four passes for 131 yards and Mm -hmm. a touchdown, that's great. Take away the 98-yard pass, Chris. And now we're talking about 3 of 12 for 33 yards. Not that impressive of a debut for Justin Fields. The kid can run the ball. We know that. But passing-wise, this is a major drop-off from Dwayne Haskins. Well, there's no question about it. There's there's no date and no doubt that uh, it's going to be a major drop-off in terms of just passing uh, acumen. Now, what Justin Fields can provide is the dual-threat capability, which, quite frankly, fits kind of what Urban Meyer used to like to run and what I think – 
Ryan Day is going to do is if that's where they end up going, that's where they're going to utilize them. Uh, let me say this too: you're not you don't have your entire offense in, so uh, you're not going to get the full complement of what you're going to see. But in terms of to me, is how well do you throw it? Um, do you get it out on time? It, it, it's it, you know the overall again the concepts of the offense or the defense is not real good. Now we'll say this. Um, most of the defenses that are being run are, are you may be just limited it's and basic, on offense. Yeah. So it's pretty simplified to make some plays. Uh, but all this does, in my opinion, is show where Justin Fields is, uh, the where he needs to grow and get better. And you just move from there. They've got they've got a ways to go um, and, and to figure out who's going to be the guy, where it's uh, how it's going to play out. Um, and I think those things will kind of kind of play its way out. I think I think they'll be fine. I think he'll do a nice job. There's a spot for him there. He may well win it, but he's he's going to have to come out and play well. They've got a couple of young guys, and it's going to be listen. It's going to be a challenge because Haskins bailed out that team last year with his yep. arm. I mean, he made big time play after big time play after big time play. They're going to have to utilize probably the athletic skills of the quarterbacks a little bit more this year to have. The type of success that they're gonna they're gonna um, they're gonna need because I don't think the passing game will be anywhere near what it has been, um, you know, um, with with Haskins at the helm. You know, everyone's looking at that play and gushing over Justin Fields and say, "Wow, what a throw! Did you see that ninety-eight yard touchdown?" When I watch that play, Chris, I'm going, "Man, Benjamin Victor." might be one of the best wide receivers in the country. <laughs> Did you see this breakaway speed? Yeah, so he's, I was he's impressed a good with him. He's a good-looking kid. He's a junior, and you know, depending on the type of year that he has, he's got a really good future that uh, uh, onto the next level. They, listen, they're loaded. And that's why I say I think that there's no cause for, you know, to be overly concerned about, hey, where they are, what the problems are. Uh, I, I think that there's they're, they're going to be fine this year, but, um, you know, the passing game, I think, is one thing you have to question and say, how good will they be? Um, I think that's uh, that's in debate right now. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Well, the other quarterback question that a lot of people are asking after the, the school spring game is what's going to be at Auburn? Uh, four quarterbacks played in what they call their A-Day game, and they're trying to replace a pretty good quarterback in Jared Stidham. They got four guys that are in the mix. Of course, the guy that at least the fans that I've heard that want, they want to see is Bo Nix. You know, he's a true freshman. He enrolled early for a reason. So, so they can, so they can get a head start on learning, you know, how to be involved in this program and the playbooks and everything. Uh, do you hand the reins over in the SEC to a true freshman like that, or are you you're, you're likely to go with one of the other guys they have on their roster? Well, no, I don't think you hand it over to him. And in fact, it's just the opposite. I think you have to let it play out, let him win it. And if he's going to win it, he's going to win it. It may be that Malik Willis is the guy because he's a redshirt junior. He's been in the program and he's he's a little bit more seasoned in what to do. Um, with the offense and has he's I think more of a short yardage package guy but you know I think it really depends on Bo and how well he progresses I mean let's keep in mind I mean, this is a, he's a top recruit, Chris. Though this is you, you know we're talking about like a yes, like a yes, Trevor yes, Lawrence but, level recruit maybe not yes, as high as recruit. Lawrence but yeah. But he's a recruit, mm-hmm. and, and and Trevor Lawrence didn't come in and and you know right away do it and win the job either. 
you know, I think it may take time. Uh, the other thing is, do they have the weapons in the passing game and do they have do they coach the offense the way Clemson coaches the offense? And the answer to both of those are no. Mm -hmm. So the issue is, I mean, I think Bo Nix is the more talented quarterback overall, but he doesn't have any experience. I mean, he has no experience at this level. And so um, it's going to take for this situation all fall in a lot of these situations, all of fall practice to figure it out because you don't figure it out based upon what they did in high school. You have to bring them in. You have to see how well they're able to adjust to it. And based upon that, that's how you decide. Well, he's he hasn't taken any tests yet. He hasn't. I mean, mm -hmm. he's barely even taken notes. So uh, <laughs> he quizzes yet. So you gotta you gotta let that play out. I, do I think that eventually he may be the guy this year? Mm -hmm. I, I I do. I think you know. But wh where do you go? I mean, Gatewood's a young guy. Um, you know, Sandberg's a young guy. Willis is a guy that's been around a little longer. I, I think he can run packages and do things in their offense. Uh, but again, it's a completely different offense than say in Clemson. And, and again, we all know what happened at Clemson last year. Trevor Lawrence didn't get the starting job, but they kind of, he kind of earned it. And of course they've got a lot of talent around them. And to his credit and to Clemson's credit, you know, Trevor, and Trevor, I mean, they, all they did is won the national championship. <laughs> but, man, as he sit there and watch this guy, I mean, they make play, so many plays around him. This kid's got great ability. It's not that Trevor completely is ensconced in that offense and knows every nuance, not even close. But, man, when you get one-on-one -on -one coverage and he throws it up and he contorts his body and makes some big – you got guys going making plays one-on-one. -on -one. They've got some big, some big war daddies out at receiver – that you know can allow a young quarterback to develop. Is Auburn going to be able to do that? It's just going to be interesting because uh, it's certainly a pivotal year for Gus Malzahn, and obviously the success of this offense is going to be directly correlated to how well the quarterback play is, and we're going to have to just see at this point they don't have a starting quarterback. That is has to be earned, and that would be a concern. Ideally, you know, as a college quarterback, you'd love to have, you know, uh, a guy coming back, you know, whether it's Stidham in this case or someone else that you felt good about and you're going to play or, you know, in the case of Clemson, Kelly Bryant, and then let the young guy beat him out. But you have a guy that you feel comfortable with that's not going to, you know, um, get to hurt, uh, you know, or retard the growth of your overall offense because he's so young he doesn't know what to do. To throw a young guy in, I mean, very rarely does that happen with a lot of success. And, you know, we can go to the Trevor Lawrence's. We can go to the, you know, the Tua who didn't have a lot of, um, you know, experience as well. Um, even going into last year, it's tough to do. Don't. And, and it's only successful in most cases when it is successful. It's only successful because the team around them is so good that allows them to grow without having to be all uh, to be all that in terms of a quarterback and knowing the entire offense. Bo Nix, uh, Alabama high school record for total offense and touchdowns responsible for. His, his dad is Patrick Nix, who's the quarterback. And he's his there. he was his coach in high school, too. Yeah, really, really good quarterback and uh, played for Pat Dye and was there in the early 90s. And um, he's, you know, listen, dual threat guy that is outstanding. And as you mentioned, can throw the football, can run it. So I think a lot of what they do, it's not a complex offense. Um you know, um, now here's the other thing too. Uh, exactly, uh, we, we, let's. This is maybe the bigger issue too. 
is if you look at they've got a new offensive coordinator in Kenny Dillingham. Mm. Comes from Memphis. How much is Gus Malzahn going to – I mean, I know going in the way it's stated, Kenny's going to run the offense. If they struggle early, will Gus become involved again? We've seen that act before. And so how that's going to play out. This is not the offense that Dillingham runs um, is not the offense that that uh, that, that Gus Malzahn has run. Uh, it's certainly not uh, something that it, Bo Nix ran in high school. Uh, but you know, I think that um, you know that there's going to be have to be some adjustment from a coaching standpoint to figure something out because you've got, in my opinion, a young guy that's not ready. They got to get them ready, and you've got maybe a, another guy that is got a little bit more experience, but is more of a situational guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it and, and uh, how much success they have. And when you look at Auburn's success um, in recent years, when they've had success and they've been up and down, it's been when they've had that quarterback. Nick Marshall was certainly not a great passer, but he can run. So mm-hmm. there is a history if they get off the slow start where they might say, "Okay, Malik Willis." You're going to be Nick Marshall. This is what you're going to do. This is what we're going to we're going to run. We're going to run the RPOs. You're going to have the zone read, and and we're going to go that direction. That's going to depend upon again how quickly Bo Nix is able to pick things up. We'll know that answer um, in the early fall, or at least we'll begin to know the answer then. We won't know it until then. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we have our state of the program on Alabama coming up in just a few minutes here, Chris. And there is some news with Nick Saban, but I want to talk about a former. Alabama player, and that is Jalen Hurts, who made his Oklahoma debut at their spring game, and mm-hmm. all he did was throw 11 of 14 for 174 yards and a rushing touchdown, looking what the scouts, uh, what the reporters are saying was poised and in command. Those are the two words, and what more do you want from your quarterback than to be poised and in command? He is just, he is just a He's a consummate pro, this kid, and I think that it's it's it only looks be- it only looks good for the Sooners, you know. Well, yeah, and you know he is certainly a leader. He's certainly a competitor. Um, this offense is built around spreading people out, making it quarterback friendly, um, creating a lot of spacing in coverage, so that it's you know a lot of half field reads, and you'll have success with that. Uh, we've seen the last couple of quarterbacks who had both had more passing skills than Jalen have success. But I think that were um, enhanced by the way that Lincoln Riley runs his offense. Um, it, it is also, to be fair, a point out that you're, you're talking about a defense, which we'll see if Alex Greenwich can improve this Oklahoma defense, but they're not very good. And you're running again temper everything with um you know with about four different looks well it's pretty easy to get a read on what a defense is doing when they're just running on a few things and things that they want to work on not game planning for the offense and so again i would temper things but it does not by that comment i mean that is an overall it is not uh, an indication that i don't think that jalen hurts won't be successful with oklahoma on the contrary i think he will be um, I think if he puts up the passing numbers to the to the degree of what Baker and um, and Murray have, uh, I would be color me surprised uh, to some degree. But you can take this to the bank. He will have more passing success because this is what they do. This is how they're made. It's part of their offense and the tempo 
And with all due respect, it is going up against defenses that are they're, they're very manageable and very attackable. So I expect him to have, without question, his best year in, in, in terms of statistics. And I, I think that's why he's gone there. The kid did his homework. His dad's a coach. I just could coach it. They said, why not go there? You got an opening. All they've done is develop quarterbacks. You're going to put up big numbers. If you've got any future, you know, at the position, you've got to show what you can do, and you're going to do it better there. And it's certainly not a program while Alabama may be better than Oklahoma right now, uh, you know, Oklahoma is on a par in terms of an elite program. It's not like you're having to go to a group of five school and, you know, try to prove yourself there. Uh, you're going to a big time program that you very well, uh, it, it very well could end up being in the, at least the playoff hunt. And uh, who knows, maybe even play Alabama in the playoffs. Wouldn't that be uh, a hoop? <laughs> so I, I think that uh, I think this is, you know, a good situation for him. And I'm very curious to see how it'll develop. And I expect he'll do well. All right. Well, there's a lot of Alabama news. And because Alabama is our school of the week here in our state of the program, I just want to lump it all into one segment. So without further ado, this is our state of the program. What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. Now, Chris, before we get into the history and the rich history, of course, of the Alabama Crimson Tide, there is news. Uh, First, we'll start with Nick Saban, and then we'll get into their spring game. Nick Saban says that he's dealing with a hip issue that could have a lengthy recovery. What's the latest that you're hearing? Have you heard from, from Nick or anybody close to Nick? What's going on with his health situation here? Well, I wasn't aware that he was having a problem with his hip. Obviously, he has, and as typical as Nick, he's, he's on top of things. It's been bothering him, so um, he's decided that, hey, you know, it, it seems like it's something that will need to get corrected at some point. Um, and at some point for him is, hey, let's handle it now. Yeah, Football season's a bad time. Right after football season, it's recruiting. Then you go right into spring practice. Um I think he wants to get done with the draft where he, I anticipate, like he is every year, going to be, um, and this year it's going to be in Nashville, uh, where he is going to be with his, a number of his players that are going to get drafted. It's a great um, uh, celebratory uh, moment for him, but also a a photo op and a, a recruiting tool, if you will, mm. uh, for he and all the coaches that have a chance to you know, be on TV and a lot of recruits saying, look, here's another Alabama player taken. There's another Clemson player taken, uh, et cetera, and so on and so on. So once that is done, it seems like at the early part of May where things will, you know, it's as slow as you can get. Uh, it seems like he's going to have the surgery and uh, he'll have his time to rehab and do what, the, do what he needs to do and be back in, uh, in fold to be able to, to you know, I, I would imagine that it uh, it's going to be hard to keep him out of the office for very long. Uh, knowing him, I'm sure he has things organized. It, his uh, estate um, in Tuscaloosa, right there, I'm, and he's got a big office in his home. Uh, he'll have um, he already has it like another makeshift office, like he has, mm. but uh, extra things that he needs. People that need to come over and maybe see him at the house and do work. If he needs to be uh, housebound for a little while in his rehab, 
that'll be done, um, you know, in accordance as to he wants. So to um, to take whatever he needs to do, he'll be on top of everything. And uh, and obviously we'll have this behind him. And uh, from what I understand, these things and um, I, I haven't had one, but um, may need one one day, but, uh, that, that they, that, that the recovery is really good. And everybody says once they get it replaced, uh, n- you know, it's just like, it's new, it's no more pain, yeah. you know, it's a lot better. So, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And he says, uh, he wants to get it done. This is the time to do it. Doing it at any other time just wouldn't make a whole lot of sense and would risk maybe some issues. And we've seen this happen before with the coaches that, you know, it's usually other things that he can control this. Of course, you know, if somebody has a heart attack, well, nobody can control that. And uh, remember Johnny Majors having a heart attack during the season at Tennessee and he rushed back to quit. I mean, you have a lot of those things that take place. Well, you can't control any of that. But with a hip that's gradually gone bad, you know, he can plan it. And the ultimate planner is – Planning his operation. <laughs> uh, well, he's going to also have a difficult time maybe planning for what could happen if they need to replace Tua Tungavailoa. Uh Tua is the Alabama quarterback, and he's number one. He's 1A. Everyone knows that. But who's going to be 2A? Who's right behind him? I think that's a question that even Nick doesn't answer, doesn't know how to answer right now. Mac Jones got the bulk of the reps, I guess, during the spring game. 19 of 23 passing, 172 yards and two touchdowns. People said that he had good command of the offense. But the freshman, Paul Tyson, who is a legacy with Alabama, he is uh, the um, he's Bear Bryant's uh, great-grandson. Mm-hmm. And Tua's younger brother, Talia, they both... Nick Saban says haven't had a real grasp of the offense yet, which is understandable mm-hmm. because they're freshmen. But this is important because we've seen Alabama need to go to a backup quarterback multiple times. They need to have a viable option behind Tua. Well, they do. Um, I think clearly it's it's not if they had to go to one. It's Mac uh, Jones right they now. They say any time to Mac Jones is the guy. And I think he'll be the guy. As the season progresses, I will say this. It is significant because Tua is, I mean, he's healthy now. Um, uh, but we, I, I do wonder a little bit because of his frame, if he's a guy that's, that we have to worry about him durability wise. Um, and well, they also and took I'll care of that last year, Chris, by winning, by, by building up a margin of victory where this guy didn't play in the fourth quarter for the first seven games or so. Yeah, and it could be the same case again this year. Um, I think that in terms of if they lost him during the season, um, I mean they can still win the majority of their games. Yeah, but the the pivotal games, I would say this: that um, if what happens if if what happened last year happens this coming year, uh, which is Tua goes out, of course Jalen Hurts, who we just talked about comes in um i don't think there is lucky i mean you never know the type of game i mean you get in the right type of game and i mean who knows you know if, if they in a conference championship game they might have a lead so you know in forecasting what what would happen if the injury takes place when you don't know when would the injury take place and what are the circumstances are difficult i'll just say this that um they're not in as good a place at backup quarterback if tua goes down for an extended period I don't think Alabama is winning a national championship mm. uh, without him. Now, 
again, if it happens when they got a lead and it's in the playoffs and, you know, uh, you know, and it's in the championship game, that's a different situation. But if they have to play with without him, I think that's that's a legitimate concern because uh, Talia, Paul Tyson, which, by the way, are two completely different styles, mm-hmm. but are very young, um, could potentially at the end of the year, um, they be ready. Maybe. But I'm not quite sure about that because I don't know how much how much reps they're going to get. I, I would think that Mac Jones is going to be the guy getting the majority of the reps in blowout games, assuming there are blowout games. And if that's the case, then that's going to be the guy they have to turn to if Tua goes down. So, uh, listen, it, it's going to be a long season. We'll see. But I, I don't like Alabama's chances as much if they have to go to their backup quarterback this year as I did last year. And that's subject to change. But at least at this point, that's how I see it. Boy, is there if if you just typed in Alabama quarterback in, in the dictionary, like Mac Jones's picture, it just comes up. Like the, he just looks <laughs> like the Alabama quarterback. You know, like the the, <laughs> the Greg McElroys, the, you know, the, the the AJ McCarrens. Like he is just built as an Alabama quarterback. You know, he's like that prototypical Alabama historic quarterback. But speaking of Alabama's history, uh, we're talking about seventeen national championships, Chris, that go back far beyond Nick Saban, and yes, even before Bear Bryant. Absolutely. Um, it's a long, long history. Like most programs that developed, and you could look at them as maybe the best history, uh, historical program, it goes back kind of how most of these themes have run through breaking down the series of all of these histories, these programs, kind of started by a student on campus. It was something 1892 and a law student learned how to play football uh, when he was in prep school in Andover, Massachusetts. A guy by the name of William Little brought the game to the Alabama students. They get started. Their first game was in November of 1892. They played at a baseball park at Alabama. <laughs> and, you know, uh, they, they, they end up playing a few games that year against Birmingham schools, played both Swanee, which is the school of the South in Tennessee, and, and Auburn. And then and off they go. And they start to build a program, and it all kind of started uh, it, it, at that point. In 1915, Thomas Kelly come in. He coaches first half of the year. Uh, he ends up came down with typhoid fever, and they brought in uh, a Fairly Moody to be the head coach for the remaining four games of the season. They joined the Southern Conference in 1922, um, and you know they they ended up starting to really develop their program and uh, played some good schools in the East, and there they go. And then they they had a coach um, Zen Scott who uh, died as we kind of referenced that a few times in some of these histories it was we tend to forget back in those days it was pretty common for people to die for unknown reasons in their 30s and 40s without penicillin and whatnot but we have a lot of that unfortunately but then they bring in wallace wade who was the first you know became the first great alabama coach he was a brown alum brown university alum and he was an assistant at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was a power. He assisted uh, Dan McGeegan, which if you are on Nashville's campus, you've heard of McGeegan Hall. That's named after Dan. And Wallace Wade came in and did a did a really good job. And they had uh, they built a really good power at um, 
at Vanderbilt. And Wade, you know, had some good years, but then after lackluster seasons in 28 and 29, and they lost to um, uh, Coach Nealon's Tennessee Volunteers, Wade submitted his regu- re- resignation. Uh, he ended up with a 61-13-3 and record at Alabama. Uh, and he coached some Hall of Fame players and the, the Fred Pickards, the Fred Singsons, and the Herschel Caldwells and the Hoyt Winslets, the Johnny Mac Browns and the Pooley Hubbards. Guys like that were some of the all-time greats. Um, but, you know, the pressure even then was, you know, hey, you got to win. And, I mean, how, I mean, how good is 61-13-3? and But kind of fired under pressure, believe it or not. Well, in 31, Frank Thomas comes in. He was an assistant coach at Georgia, and he accepted the accepted the head job at Alabama. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Uh, you know, you've got a guy, a, 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 an assistant at Alabama, and Kirby Smart goes to his alma mater in Georgia. But Frank goes to Alabama, and he established himself as one of the really top coaches in the country. He had a four and two record, one of the Rose Bowl in thirty five and forty six, and Cotton Bowl in forty two, the Orange Bowl in forty three, and um, he coached. Uh, Paul Bear Bryant during his time when he was at the Alabama head coach. Uh, Paul played for him. And then uh, Don Hudson of the Hudson Center, the great uh, Green Bay Packers, Don Hudson, Vaughn Mancha, um, Harry Gilmer, great uh, the player there, Johnny Keene, Riley Smith. Um, so, you know, Coach Thomas did a really good job. Then they joined the SEC in 1933, won their first conference championship pretty early. Thomas would lead them to the national championships in 34 and 41. And then he had some issues. Um, smoking was very prevalent back then, and mm-hmm. it led to some health issues and forced him to retire. And uh, they ended up actually not playing football at Alabama in 43 because of World War II. Frank Thomas's record at Alabama is 115. 24 and 7. Wow. Um, pretty uh, effective. So, January 47, Harold Drew was hired as the head coach, and um, Red Drew, as he was called, uh, led him to 8 and 3 record and birth in the Sugar Bowl and number eight ranking. And they had the big time upset win over a great Georgia Tech team, and all else was great. He was selected coach of the year in 52, was given a two year contract extension. Following year, he led him to a an SEC title in 53 and a berth in the Cotton Bowl Classic in uh, 54. It's 54 team. Finished sixth place in the SEC, 4-5-2. and two. And with the poor showing, rumors began. He's not going to return as the head coach. All the success, <laughs> one bad year. Boom. Yeah, pressure was even back then. So he was fired that year, and he was replaced by J.B. Whitworth, better known as Ears Whitworth. Now, um, Drew stayed on and was part of the administration and even coached the track team. But here's Whitworth would lead Alabama to his worth, worst uh, three-year stretch in school history. From 55 to 57, they were 4-24-2. 14-game losing streak from 55 to 56. Um, in the first year, they only allowed him to hire only two of his own coach, coaches, and he was forced to retain the staff of uh, Harold Drew and, uh, you know, so and, and the, the athletic director, get this, how, how unique was this? The athletic director was Hank Crisp, who was Whitworth boss, but ran the defense. So let me <laughs> let me let me let me say this. OK, so the athletic director is the defensive coordinator and he is the head coach's boss. Boy, that doesn't sound like some real weird stuff. Uh, it was. So 
Whitworth brought in, um, uh, you know, a couple of assistants with them and uh, from Oklahoma A&M. And anyway, following um, success of two seven and one seasons in 56 and 57, uh, Whitworth was fired. And then they go and hire one of their own. Um, I mentioned Pear Bryant had played for Frank Thomas at Alabama. They go and, as Bear Bryant famously said, Mama called, and that was his way of saying when – when the alma mater calls, you leave, and he yeah. left uh, A&M to take over the Alabama program in December of 1957. Uh, I tell the story all the time, but um, uh, quite a, a, a long – it was over a decade before he had had an opportunity, Bear Bryant did, to go to Arkansas to be the head coach. And uh, uh, he – you know, Pearl Harbor broke out, and of course, his career – he was an assistant at Vanderbilt at the time, and of course, that – Obviously, changed everything, changed the world, and Bear went on and coached at Maryland for one year. Had Erko um, uh, Fruffle, we'll call it, with the president at Maryland. Only stayed there one year, then went to Kentucky and did a nice job there. And began with uh, with an, George Blanda among those, Bay Perilli, and a number of other great Kentucky players. Won an SEC title there. But it was always second fiddle to basketball, and he always thought it would be. So he took the job at Texas A&M, and, uh, and that led to kind of where people more, you know, remember Bear Bryant and the Junction Boys and the stories that came with that. And then, of course, in 57, he goes home to Alabama. His first season, he only went 5-4-1, and one, and that was one more win than, the, than uh, you know, than they've had before. But then he goes on and – um, he starts to have the success in his fourth season. They go to a national championship game, first bowl win from 61 to 66. They went 65 and one, three national championships, 61, 64, 65, four SEC titles, two undefeated seasons, six bowl berths. Um, and this, throughout the 70s, um, they were dominant. And living through it in the late 60s and the 70s, watching it time and time again, they were just uh, untouchable. Um, during the decade of the 70s, 103, 16-1. <laughs> Eight SEC titles, three national titles, 73, 78, 79. Um, and so, you know, it, it just became a dominant, dominant program. They were late to the party in bringing in uh, African-American players uh, one of my best friends, a guy that I coach with, and uh, uh, John Mitchell was the first African American transfer, at least, coming in to play. He was from uh, Eastern Arizona Junior College. He was a uh, from Mobile, and so uh, he was an Alabama kid. But he came in and played for Bear. And Bear Bryant was, I, I, I you know, people have asked me to compare Bear Bryant and Scott. The only way I, I can't really compare him to a coach. The guy that comes to mind every time I think of a comparison for Bear Bryant is John Wayne. You know how John Wayne was kind of the, you know, nobody messed with him. He was iconic and, you know, it was just is a different world. Nobody criticized him, but he was a man among man, uh, a man. You know, everybody looked up to John Wayne. Everybody looked up to Bear Bryant. Uh the, the great coaches of the time, John McKay, who was building a power at USC, just, you know, said he was 
he called him, quoted as saying he was the coach. He was the guy. Yeah. Uh, other coaches uh, all around the country, uh, and there were some that he didn't, uh, you know, uh, get along with, and competitors, and Bobby Dodd, and he famously, Georgia Tech coach, didn't have a But he was just so universally respected. He was a guy that always downplayed. You know, in that era, you know, you didn't hear it, but after he, they win, he'd always credit his players. If they lost – uh, he, he called himself a sorry coach and he did, mm-hmm. he just, that's what he was. But, um, six national championships, 13 SEC titles, 24 bowl appearances. He did not have a good bowl record. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, it was, it, I mean, it was a sub 500 bowl record. Now the bowls were big time bowls. I mean, they didn't play in a lot of small bowls, Yeah, you know, so they were all big bowls, but you know, he didn't really, you know, have that good of a record. So he announced he was going to retire. There was a lot of talk about it. And the the irony of it is he said that, you know, they asked what he was going to do um, once he retired. He says, I'll probably croak within a week. Um, he coached his final game against Illinois in the Liberty Bowl. And it may have been one of the more uh, covered and intensely televised, scrutinized, publicized game because it was the last game for Bear Bryant. Um, he died. Okay, so the game was in December. He died January 26th. So a month later, he died of a heart attack. And uh, the, the, he was uh, getting ready to go, I think, a day or two later to Las Vegas, which he liked to go to Vegas when he got a chance. And um, he died of a heart attack. And so he had issues and uh, problems that were complicated with a bad heart due to smoking and drinking. It was a big part of it. So um, when he retired, though, before him passing away, they needed to find the guy the unenviable task of replacing the bear. Um, Word is that he wanted Gene Stallings, but – he was okay with Ray Perkins as well. From and Ray Giants. Perkins, the Giants coach, was the guy they turned to. Bear called him and asked him to come. And, you know, it is um, – it hadn't happened very often. Ironically for Alabama, Nick Saban leaves the Dolphins a head NFL job to go to Alabama where Ray Perkins did it. Not too often do you see a guy leave a, an NFL head job to go back to college. Um, you don't see that very often. You see guys get fired and then from the NFL and go. But this is this is uh, you know Ray Perkins comes in and you know it was uh, he did a nice job, but it, it's to say it's tough to replace Bear Bryant is a ridiculous understatement. Uh, first season they finished seven and four, uh, struggled some the second season, five and six didn't go to a bowl game. Um, you know in '85 they got a little bit better, and at this time. I was involved in as a young coach. There's a student assistant coach coaching against some of these teams and preparing for some of these teams. We had a game where uh, they came back on us and tied us when Mike Shula is the quarterback. Um, but, you know, Ray didn't – he had a 32-15-1 and one record. Um, and then things didn't go well. He decided to go back to the NFL, and he took the head job with the Tampa Bay um, – Buccaneers. Now, he's the only head coach to lead them to a win over Notre Dame for nearly 30 years. Bear Bryant never beat Notre Dame. Played him several times, never beat him. Well, Saban so, would eventually do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he, he absolutely took care of that. 
But at those days, that was something that, again, bowl records were yeah. very good for 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 uh, for Bear. So they hire, and this was one of the more stranger hires because if you go back in the history, and again, this just goes to show you. When you have somebody that's running the university, sometimes things you, you think things are the right way to go. But there's a Georgia Tech coach by the name of Bill Curry who was coaching at his alma mater. He played at Georgia Tech for Bobby Dodd. Now, Bobby Dodd and Bear Bryant had hated one another. So now you get Bill Curry that's coming into Alabama. Good young coach. Makes some sense in one hand. But Bill Curry comes in, and he's kind of a young whippersnapper. Um, and he, you know, he did some things that were a little bit controversial. Like he had Bear Bryant's tower torn down and, you know, it's kind of sacred there that, and things like that started to rub people around the way. And so, you know, this is my program now, yada, yada, yada. Well, that didn't work too well. He had some success, made some bold appearances, but it got bad. And when it got, you know, bad on the field, uh, it was very clear that, you know, he wasn't one of their guys and they had a lot of problems with the administration. Um, there were some, a lot of tensions within the athletic department, three straight launches, uh, lo- losses to Auburn and so much for that. They offered him a, a contract, uh, and this is their way of getting rid of him. They offered him a contract and in the contract, it said that they stripped him of his power to hire and fire his coaching staff. And so that's when Bill Curry, they mutually agreed, he got fired, he quit, whatever, went on to Kentucky. Then they brought in back one of their own, which not an Alabama one of their own, but one of Bear Bryant's own, Gene Stallings. Comes in and obviously Gene was a member of the Junction Boys at A&M that played for Bear Bryant and did great, a good great job movie. coach. Great, yeah. uh, great movie. Uh, that was like one of those ESPN movies. Yes, the yes, Boys. absolutely. Tom, remember Tom Berenger played, uh, played Bear yes. Bryant? Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you know, Gina's um, really good coach at AM. He got fired from the Cardinals. He, you know, Gene had, had played for Bear Bryant and coached for Tom Landry. So, you know, being touched by greatness and being around greatness, uh, he, he certainly had that. Um, not many people were having success, you know, coaching for the Cardinals at that time. They were the Phoenix Cardinals before they just became the Arizona Cardinals. And they got like, oh, there. So he was hired to come to Alabama and did a really good job. In his third season, they were unbeaten in the regular season. Three shutout victories. A great, still to this day, maybe as good a defense as I've seen in college football that season. Uh, They avoided an upset um, uh, in a a game over Florida in the SEC championship game. Antonio Langham picked the ball off. Really good Florida team, a Spurrier team. They win that game, and they go play. The in the 1993 Sugar Bowl for the national title, uh, the Miami Hurricanes, who were an eight to ten point favorite, a Gino juggernaut. That was the Gino Toretta's Heisman year, right? Yes, an absolute, well, he was 90, 92 Heisman winner. So yeah, that was yes, ninety three. So yeah, yes, that would have been the, that season. Nine, yeah, the ninety three Sugar Bowl. So uh, it was an absolute juggernaut of a team. Um, they routed them. Uh, they beat. Miami 34-13 and it was they finished 13-0 and and they won their 12th national championship and that was the first one since the Bear Bryant era so you know it was you know a long stretch when Bear retired that they did not have a lot of success didn't sniff national titles coach Stallings is kind of held in high regard he didn't spend a lot of time long time there you know 90 to 96 but um you know 
kind of brought the program back to glory. So he's he's heralded there. I mean, if you, you look at it in the modern time from Bear Bryant on, it was just Bear Bryant, him, and, and obviously now Saban that has put titles in. The others struggled. But they had some issues off the field. The Antonio Langham, who uh, was the key guy in winning that SEC championship game, got caught in an NCAA issue, and that led to some problems. And it really kind of uh, led to Coach Stallings' retirement, which was coming anyway. So they promote Mike Dubose as the head coach. And, I mean, they lose 30 scholarships. Team weren't real competitive. Mm -hmm. There was a controversial Mike Dubose got involved in a scandal uh, with his secretary and in the Bible Belt, that didn't go well. They're not winning, and all of a sudden, it's embarrassment. So they fire Mike DeBose. They go and hire a coach from TCU, Dennis Franchoni. Uh, he comes in, um, does some good things. Uh, there's some NCAA sanctions. Um, you know, did a nice job. Things were going well, but he didn't quite fit in. Um, they end up beating Hawaii in a bowl game and. Um, you know, as it turned out, um, you know, Texas A&M fires R.C. Slocum. And Franchoni wanted the A&M job, wanted to get out of Alabama and left. After saying he would not leave, he ended up leaving. And there he goes and off he went. And who do they hire to replace Dennis Franchoni? Well, they go out and hire a guy that's done a great job at Washington State, gets Washington State to the Rose Bowl, Mike Price. Eesh. He goes in. Hard, hard <laughs> December. Each is right. December yep. 2002. Never coaches a game. Never coach. Never coached the game. Yep. Absolutely. Got involved in a strip club incident. Got fired before you ever coach. Then they hire Mike Shula, one of their own, over another one of their own, Sylvester Croom. In a what was considered a controversial hire. Uh, a lot of people thought Sylvester deserved it. He was a great player for Bear and um was a center would have been uh, you know an African and first African American as a head coach and, and they well, hired he was Mike Shula. he that, was that, when he got hired at um at Mississippi yeah, State but, first uh, SEC first African American coach in the SEC right but he would have been the first one yeah. in the SEC at Alabama uh -huh. had they hired him uh, he ended up as you mentioned to get the Mississippi State job later but that was kind of the 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 divided and the hire and and so they went with Shula and the name and all that well third season they rolled a ten and two record and go to the Cotton Bowl and. Some success, but they couldn't find any success, uh, consistency. Um, you know, they after the, the success of 2006, they lost every game on the road the next year, and they ran him out. Uh, they called him Bambi because he had a deer in the headlight looks every, every time. <laughs> he, he just couldn't figure it out, and the job was way too big for him. He wasn't ready. So as they fired Mike Shula, they go on a, on a, on a, on a coaching search that was one for the ages. Mal Moore, the late Mal Moore, was the athletic director. Mal Moore was an assistant for Bear Bryant and um, now running the athletic department. He wanted Bear Bryant. Uh, excuse me. He wanted uh, Nick Saban. Could get nowhere with him. And so they go on a, a, hurt, a, a, a search and they're looking at people and considered Jim Levitt and they looked at other options. They offered the job to Rich Rodriguez, West Virginia. Rich Rodriguez said he'd take it, wanted to think about it, you know, give him 24 hours, thought about it, changed his mind. Um, the great booster out at West Virginia uh, offered up some more money, stay home, you know, yada, 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 so he stays. So they're still looking, and they're trying to figure things out. Mal is the only one that thinks that he's got a shot at getting 
Nick Saban. Um, it's going on and on and on, the search that is. And they actually went to Steve Spurrier at Florida. And for about, I don't know, maybe, I don't even know that Steve considered it more than an, an hour or two. They had a conversation and he quickly said, no, I'm not going to. So again, the, the search is on. Well, Mal, not to be denied, went out and basically just hung out in Fort Lauderdale with an effort working through Jimmy Sexton, Nick Saban's agent. I'm kind of involved in it in, in, a, in a roundabout way, at least on the inside of kind of what he's wanting to do, Nick, that is. And Nick is wanting to stay with the Dolphins. He felt a loyalty to Wayne Huizenga. And he, he wanted to, and he liked it. He liked, you know, he he liked coaching in the NFL. He liked working for Heisinger, and he and he thought he could turn it around. And and uh, the the whole thing with Drew Brees didn't, you know, work out because he wanted mm-hmm. to sign him, and all that didn't work out because of the shoulder injury and so on. But he felt he could work it out and wanted to do it. Terry Saban, Nick's wife, was not really happy at it uh, with my in Miami. Uh, she is the type that. It likes being the queen bee of, of, of a football program. And when you're at college, whether it's at an LSU or in Alabama, you're kind of the first lady of Alabama more than the governor's wife. I mean, you're that. And she likes that. And so Mal gets wind of that. And he starts to develop a relationship with Terry about, you know, hey, and, and she is basically working with Mal Moore to try to get Nick to consider this job and take the job. And I mean, she's, you know, she, she's working it hard. And so they continue to work it. And I remember the story of, all right, they come in, he makes his final spiel to Nick and, you know, let me think about it. And, and he comes back and it looks like he's going to take it. Terry's convincing him he's going to take it. And the next day, Nick is driving, you know, either to the facility, dolphins are back or whatever. And he calls Terry and he says, I, I, I just don't feel good about this. I, you know, I, I, I want to stay. And, you know, he goes and he visits with Rain Heisinger and he tells him what's going on. And he says, Nick, he says, look, he says, if you want to go, go. He says, I'm not going unless I get your blessing. He says, you got my blessing. If that's what your family wants, that's what you want to do then go, you know, I mean, I, I understand, you know, that's, it's, it's life. And, um, and only then that, then he kind of gave the okay. And, you know, of course, if mama ain't happy, no one's happy. And, and that, that was the end of it. And that where he finally decided. And I remember Mal Moore saying that he told the pilot that when he left Alabama to go to, to Miami and Fort Lauderdale, he said he wasn't going back. Cause he says, if I can't get Nick Saban, I can't go back to Alabama <laughs> and he delivered him. And I think we can just end it right there. Cause I don't think I need to explain to any of our audience what Nick Saban has done at Alabama. I think we all know the record. We all know the dominance. We all know what they've been. It's been unprecedented and how I'm going to call it lucky, how fortunate, um, I don't know, you know, give them credit, but to have the the only argument of the greatest coach in college football history, the challenger, the only challenger to Nick Saban would be Bear Bryant. I mean, how amazing could it be that one school is blessed with the two guys that are the absolute greatest of all time in any order that you want to put them? 
Wallace Wade was really good. I went over the history of Frank Thomas, how good he was. But in the modern era, you know, it's Bear Bryant, who's again more John Wayne, more loved. Scott, in a world where you didn't criticize movie stars or coaches, you didn't have talk shows, you didn't have social media. You just, you know, it was iconic. Every Sunday in Alabama, there's only three channels in the, in the world of three channels. At 4.30 in the afternoon in Alabama, everybody turned into the Bear Bryant show where he groveled and opened up a can of Golden Flake brand of potato chips or, you know, corn chips or whatever. There was a different <laughs> one every week. And it was the and that was the sponsor. It was Golden Flake and Coca-Cola. And Scott, I still think on YouTube you can find some of the shows. You'd love it if and if, if you go to it and he'd open up and he'd open up, they'd open up the bag and they'd put the bag of chips in a bowl and 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 he'd drink a sip of Coke and the saying was a great pair, says the bear, golden fake and coke. <laughs> I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, the whole world. They went to church on Sunday, and then they they watched the Bear Bryant show at fourth. I mean, that's what that's the world that they lived in. It's a different world today. It's uh, it may be more impressive that Nick Saban's been able to sustain in the highly scrutinized that everybody knows everything that you've done. Bear Bryant. You know, in a, recruited in a world where they didn't have scholarship limitations. There's a lot of things that went on in terms of how they did things rules-wise that not that they're not breaking of rules now, but there's a lot more that, that took place then. So th- there's no question that when you're looking at the programs of greatness that Alabama, if they're, if they're not the top, I'm not quite sure – who you put at the top, because if you go back on history, you go back on tradition, you go back into modern day dominance, you go back into the importance of what it means to their conference, to their community. Nobody has been more dominant than Alabama. Now, ironically, never had a Heisman Trophy winner until, until Nick Mark Saban Ingram. got there. Yeah. Mark Ingram and got, then Derrick Henry. Got two now. Yep. They got so, two. Uh, and, and, and we're talking. And almost had a third two. with two. Almost had a third with Tua. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and look at, I mean, the quarterbacks. I mean, Joe Namath, Ken mm-hmm. Stabler. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, just some John Hanna, maybe the best guard ever to play football. I mentioned Sylvester Croom, outstanding, but Billy Neighbors, Dwight Stevenson. I mean, Eric Curry, John Copeland, Bob Baumhauer, uh, uh, Cornelius Bennett, Barry Krause, Derek Thomas, Jeremiah Castile, on and on and on and on. Just loads of players. Great tradition of Alabama football. And next week, we will get into the number one team in the AP rankings, and that is the Clemson Tigers. Now, Chris, it's scouting season, and there's no better place to be than LandryFootball.com because you take everyone step-by-step through the free agent and draft process around the NFL, and you can learn what NFL teams and college programs already know by just joining LandryFootball.com today because if you join today, you get the free agency period in the NFL, the draft, college recruiting, all the coaching moves, the roster analysis. The draft's coming up. You got to know what's going on with these draft boards. Spring games are wrapping up around the country. What's the breakdown? Who looks good? Who looks bad? Why should we overreact or not overreact? All of this, you can find it on LandryFootball.com. Chris, it's a one-stop shop for all your football needs. 
Absolutely. And obviously, we've got the overall draft boards up, the positional draft boards, the scouting reports, like they're done inside the draft room up there for you as well. So you mentioned it. The draft is what's the most important thing going on in the world of football right now. And we got you covered better than anybody. And uh, certainly as we put that to bed, we'll reshape and reevaluate all the NFL rosters. We're going to really get down even more into breaking down the tape of all these spring games. I've monitored a lot of them, but certainly going to break down into, look, there is no off season. Within May, June, July, August, getting you ready for the football season, breaking down the rosters better than you've ever seen before. So we're excited about it. Come on board. Great price. Less than a magazine subscription. Uh, check out our War Room newsletter every week. Sign up for that. So a lot going on at LandryFootball.com. We want you to be a part of our family. If you like football, you'll love LandryFootball.com. And begin to learn the game and see the game uh, like a coach and a scout. And don't forget, get new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then, of course, Rush the Field and all other podcast options on the website. Just click on the little podcast icon on the website and sign up for that free War Room newsletter as well. Rush the Field with me, Scott Seidenberg, and Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. Follow me at Scott's On Air. And we'll talk to you next week on Rush the Field, Chris. Hey, look forward to it, Scott. This is a Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Do me a favor. Stop posting to a social media site about how bad your experience was because all you're doing is benefiting is benefiting your anger or your disappointment at that exact moment. You're not actually helping the business. When you start to communicate with an owner, an operator, a manager, a chef, a server, things are different. Okay? There is a different reaction that happens with that. If I get an email or for God's sake, if I get a handwritten letter, the respect that I have for what you just did will change the entire approach that I'm now going to take with my staff. Same thing goes for positive. You would never know what it's like to walk into the back of the kitchen or walk into an office or walk into a server, um, a server station or a work area where we post all the information, schedules and parties that are coming up and that stuff. And there's nothing more enjoyable than walking back there and seeing a card or a letter that's written on the back of a goddamn napkin that tells us how great we did as opposed to how bad we fucked up. Send me a letter and let me know. Send me an email and let me know so that I can fix it. Instead, if you send that to me over social media, I'm going to defend myself. I'm not going to start to try to fix the problem because now I've got to do damage control across the board. I've got to now find out how it is that I can, one, try to remove that post because the whole world is now going to see the fact that you didn't have enough goddamn ice in your drink. Okay, ask for a side of ice. Ask for a cup of ice. You know, rather than ripping people apart, it's just not the way to do it. Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.